You're listening to a podcast from the Swedish House of Finance, Sweden's National Research Center for Financial Economics. This podcast is for everyone with a curiosity for finance and an interest in academic research. To learn more about the Swedish House of Finance, visit houseoffinance.se. Hello, everyone. I am Paolo Sodini. And I'm Anastasia Girshina, and we are recording from the Swedish House of Finance at the Stockholm School of Economics. So in the last episode, we have discussed how we should think about risk in our portfolio. We talked about the role of human capital and why for many it is essentially a bond. We talked about how we should take our own preferences for risk into account, and also how we should account for our lifestyle and previous financial commitments. Today, instead, we are going to talk about how we should take that risk. We are going to talk about how we should, and most importantly, should not react to market fluctuations. We are going to introduce a concept of rebalancing and argue, I think quite strongly, in fact, against market timing. And we will then talk about diversification and also about the latest developments here, so how we can diversify across equity premium. So at the start, So now we're in a world where we have already decided how much to invest in risky assets, so which proportion of our financial wealth to invest in stocks. But of course, as markets move, so as you know, stocks increase in their value or decrease in their value, also our portfolio risky share will change. So if the market goes up, the risky share will have automatically gone up. If markets go down, then our risky share will have gone down. So, Paolo, how should you react to these market fluctuations? So, the typical recommendation is to rebalance your portfolio, which means to say that you have a target share invested in risky assets or in stocks compared to bonds, which is 50%. And then suppose that the market, you know, loses value, and from 50% you end up at 40%. You know, the value of your risky asset will reduce. And so the share that you have invested in risky asset in your portfolio will shrink. What you should do is should buy back stocks and go to 50% again. If instead the stock market is booming, you should do the opposite. Your risky share will increase to 60%, 70%, and then you should sell and go back to your 50%. And you should do this uh, regularly. People talk about doing it on regular time intervals. I would say if you do want to do it very frequently every month, every quarter, but I mean, rather than doing nothing, even do it yearly is a very good idea. Um, however, when movements are very fast, then you want, want to do it uh, more frequently. So you don't get the risky share portfolio risky share to deviate too much from the target. So if you were to bring it to the extreme, then I think a good way to put it would have been, you know, the stock when the stock market crashes, then we should buy. And so we'll buy cheap automatically. And uh, when the stock market booms, then you rebalance by, uh, by actually selling stocks. So you are reducing your risky share. And so automatically you will sell at high price. And, and I think, you know, when I now have said it out loud, I think it is essentially what people try to do when they try to time the market, except for when you rebalance, you do it 
as I said, automatically. And so you're doing it without trying to outguess the market or beat the market. Is it a good way of putting it? Yeah, totally. It's extremely difficult. And actually, I I believe, uh, I would say impossible almost. I don't know anyone who could do it uh, successfully. A lot of people claim they can do it. And they might be lucky for a few times, but um, it's extremely difficult to time the market, to decide when it's the right time to sell and when it's the right time to buy. So it's much better to do it in an automatic way. Effectively, you're going to achieve a very similar result. You sell high, you buy low, uh, but you don't try to be on the smart side of the trade. Because remember, whenever you sell, someone else is buying. Whenever you buy, someone else is selling. And I think us as you know, households, private individuals are very unlikely to be on the smart side of those trades. And I actually think a good example is, you know, the Corona year we've been, we've just been through. So do you remember when last spring, so right after the WHO declared COVID to be a pandemic, and right before the series of lockdowns have begun, the market really crushed. And and I remember, so it was March 2020, many people were saying, well, finally, it should have happened long time ago. The market has been overvalued for a long time. You know, it's impossible we've seen that rally. You know, it should have happened. Look, yeah, for sure. You know, that's that's crushed now. That's You're going to stay there. And I remember that, like, not even a couple of months later, we were back exactly to where we've been in March. And and like and by now we're like 25% up. And you know, imagine all the money lost for people who have sold, you know, in the in the bottom of the market. And and I actually think, you know, back then it was impossible to predict that we would have bounced back. Why? And I think people are still wondering, you know, how possibly it could have happened. Like where did the money come from? Yeah, and if you did follow a rebalancing strategy, then you were bought when the market was cheap. And by now you have made really a good return. If anything, you would have sold partially as the market was bouncing back and back and even outperforming the levels that we used to be before COVID and then sell kind of cash in on those gains. But it's the best thing, the part that I like most of it is that you can do all of that without trying to be smarter than the market. You kind of follow it. So, but, but do we have evidence on what people actually do? So how do people follow market fluctuations? So I actually have some work on this. I have a paper together with John Campbell and uh, Laurent Calvet. And what we show is actually there is evidence of rebalancing. There is evidence that people overall tend to rebalance their, their portfolio in the sense, but they don't do it fully. So what we find is that, um, say, people have a target of 50% and the market falls to 40%. People do not rebalance back all the way to 50, but they tend on average to rebalance half of it to 45. And we see also that more sophisticated investors, uh, more educated, wealthier investors, they tend to rebalance more actively than other investors. That's kind of the level of a portfolio risky share. When it comes to um, individual assets, uh, instead the evidence is is, um, a little bit different and we see uh, the famous kind of disposition effect, which is the 
people tend to uh, hold on losers. So when a stock loses money, instead of buying, they just hold on to it. They don't realize the loss. And when a stock instead increases in value, they tend to sell it to cash in or realize their gains. Um, so the second is kind of consistent with rebalancing, but the first is a little bit asymmetric compared to the other behavior. We don't see, though, this position effect type of behavior uh, in mutual fund holdings. Mm. And we also observe that this position effect tend to be less pronounced for more sophisticated investors. So I think that's very interesting, but let me just dig a little bit more into the risky share because we said several times portfolio risky share, but now you've been actually um, talking about stocks and, and mutual funds. And so um, what I want to talk next is, you know, when we do rebalancing and actually more generally, you know, what should our risky share consist of? That is, you know, which assets should we pick? How we should pick them? You know, how we should build the, the risky share? Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a simple answer, but uh, somehow is is difficult to communicate. Um, you should diversify your portfolio. Okay, you should not put all the eggs in the same basket. So if the basket drops, you're going to break them. them. <laughs> exactly. You don't want to break all the eggs at the same time. Uh, you want to make sure if something happens, then only a few eggs breaks. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that you buy many, many assets. You spread risk across many stocks, many industries, many countries. Uh, so let me let me try to elaborate on that with an example. Imagine, you know, after COVID, uh, we're slowing get back to a normal life. We've seen that happening in countries that are vaccinating extensively or at a, they are at a good stage of the vaccination process. And so you actually bet that airline industry are going to, you know, is going to come back. On average, airline the airline industry has yielded about six and a half percent. And by the way, and you will see why, uh, that's the same for the oil industry. So you, you, you buy airline stocks. That's going to be the next thing you think. Now, as times go by, uh, it's true that airline stocks are doing better, but at the same time, the world economy is uh, coming back to life. And so the price of oil also skyrockets, goes through the roof. Airlines need to use fuel. Uh, they can't increase tickets prices as much. The competition is fierce, especially after the pandemic. So... In the end, actually, they don't. Your your expectations are not going to be fulfilled. These stocks are not going to do do not do as well as you were expecting. But the stocks that are doing extremely well are instead oil stocks, okay? Because the price of oil is going through the roof. Now, oil stocks, as I said, they actually yield on average the same return as as airline stocks, six and a half percent. If you had bought a portfolio both airline stocks and oil stocks you would have earned anyway 6.5% on average, but you have avoided the fluctuation that only hit the airline industry because it would be compensated by the oil stock prices going in the opposite direction. So you eliminate what we call idiosyncratic risk. Risk is a specific to, specific to a certain stock, to a certain industry, to a certain country. 
And now I don't know if you actually saw the news of, of last week. There was a court in the Netherlands that ordered Royal Dutch Shell to aggressively cut uh, emissions beyond mm. what they were planning to do. This was very bad news for uh, for oil stocks as well. And uh, being airlines also not green stocks, uh, that's uh, in general, I think, bad news for uh, stocks that are not environmentally or companies that are not environmentally friendly. So then you should have thought about investing in, uh, you know, solar uh, producers. Yeah, so or it never ends. It never ends. Never That's ends. what I'm saying. It never ends. So at the end of the day, you want to be fully diversified. Yeah. So this is, I think, what, you know, me, you and I think pretty much everyone in, in, in finance in academia would, would say to our students and friends and family, you know, the best you can do is really to buy all the stocks in the world. Now, it might sound like a little bit of a crazy idea because we've said before that we have around 50,000 stocks in the world right now. So it does, it might sound like, oh, you know, theoretical academic ivory tower idea, but actually it is feasible today. And not only it is feasible, it's actually very cheap. So how you do it, you do it through the World um, Equity Index. How much does it cost? Well, in Sweden, I think the latest I checked that you, it was available for 10 bips. And, you know, just to give it, to put it in perspective, it is a fraction, it's really a fraction. So it's like a 20th over average cost of an actively managed mutual fund. So the mutual fund fees fluctuate around 2%. You can get world index at 10 basis point. Exactly. So there are these products which are called index funds, and there are also um, there is another kind of uh, connotation of it, which are called ETFs. Let's not get into the details, but basically they are cheap, and what they do is that they track certain indexes, and one of the index they can track is the world index. What is the world index? The world index follows uh, the uh, prices of all the stocks available in the world, which are about 50,000. And an index fund is a fund that tracks very closely how that index moves over time. The manager is entrusted with the task of minimizing as, as much as possible the cost of holding those stocks and transacting those stocks, minimizing the cost and tracking the index as close as possible. Instead of an actively managed mutual, mutual fund, where the manager tries to outsmart an index, an industry, a country, a world index, by picking the right stocks, which is very difficult to do for the reason that uh, we have discussed that you're, you know, you're always on one side of a trade, who is the smartest and so on and so forth. And so, you know, by getting the, the world index, what you end up with is a well-diversified portfolio and you do participate in the world growth. You do diversify across countries, across sectors, and so on and so forth. And that has delivered an average around 8% over the past century. So you also do get good returns. So you do get equity premium. So, you know, this is, of course, a good way to go. But is it the best way to go? So is it the way to go? Or there is something else? It is a very good way to go. I think it would benefit many investor portfolio. People tend to, in Sweden, for example, they tend to overweight uh, Swedish stocks 
forgetting that Sweden is just 1% of the world index. They tend to have actively managed mutual funds, which they cost on average in Europe around 2%. In Sweden, they cost a little bit less, around 1%. Uh, you know, you were mentioning it before. I think that you would go down to 10 BIPs, which is 0.1%, which is a 20th or a 10th of what you typically spend in actively managed mutual fund. And remember, that cost is paid for sure. So it's very good to avoid it. You reduce your idiosyncratic risk. You reduce the probability that you are on the wrong side of a trade. You reduce the probability that your manager, the manager of your fund, is on the wrong side of the trade. There are too many managers for all of them to be right, as we argued already. So it is very good. But at the same time, there are there is a more modern way of thinking about diversification, which kind of comes out of the research we had in the last 30 years and after the pillar on which diversification is built on, which is the work of Markowitz and uh, Bill Sharp and so forth. And the idea is that instead of diversifying simply across stocks, you diversify across risk premium. And the the mother of all risk premia, as you mentioned before, is the equity risk premium, which is how much overall stock market, the world index, for example, does better than the than the bond uh, market, and how much stocks do better than bonds. But actually concentrating on the fact that there are other premia within the stock market and other premium within the bond market. What type of premia there are? The most famous is uh, from uh, uh, Ken French and uh, uh, Eugene Fama. They were the one that kind of brought this idea forward in uh, in a very successful way. It's the value premium. And the idea is to buy cheap stocks and sell expensive stocks, where cheap means that the market valuation compared to the book value, the accounting value of the firm, is low. And expensive is that the market valuation is, uh, compared to the book value, is high. By the way, this is a concept that can be extended to other markets. You can think about cheap currencies, you can think about cheap bonds, and so on and so forth. But that's kind of the famous one. This value premium, the value premium seems to provide additional return compared to the equity premium itself. There is a size premium. You buy small stocks and you sell large stocks. So in a way, you tilt your portfolio towards smaller stocks. Then we have momentum. It's another famous one. You take stocks, you buy stocks with momentum. So stocks that did well in the last 12 months, and you sell stocks that don't have momentum, stocks that did badly in the last 12 months. And you hold this portfolio for a little while, four months, six months, and then you redo it again. Then you have betting against the beta investment, profitability, quality, liquidity, there are a bunch of them. So it does sound really, you know, really fascinating, but at the same time also really complex. Is it something that actually people use or is only there in the academic research? And is it something that individual investors can implement by themselves or just way too complicated to even, you know, start thinking about it? These are complex strategies. They are not easy to implement. I think they have be, they have spilled over to the industry and they are called the smart beta. Problem is that there could be 
investor, individual investor could be sold too many strategies and only some of them are actually uh, at least empirically sound. So I think that one should only trust uh, very reputable companies, large companies that can implement these strategies throughout the world. They have a, a very good trading ability throughout the world. So they can have, uh, they can minimize costs. For example, momentum is a very profitable strategy, but actually entails an enormous amount of trading. And so it's easy that it gets completely eaten up by transaction costs. Um, and uh, it is a real art to do it properly in the market. Unfortunately, some of the most successful companies are only available through financial advisors and not uh, actually directly to the public. Not only that, they might be available only to institutional investors. So, uh, so one should be careful. I would say that in many cases, it's even better to just buy the world index rather than kind of trusting smart beta funds that are not well established and are not backed by well-established uh, um, and reputable fund companies or asset management companies. You know, another thing that I, I, I want to ask is, so when we were talking about how much risk we should take in our portfolios, one thing we highlighted a lot is it is different for different people. It depends on age, on income, on, on employment, on their own risk preferences, on you know um, life circumstances. But how does it work when it comes to the um, to the diversification? So should all investors have the same composition of their portfolios, or different investors, depending on their circumstances, should be exposed different to this different risk premium you've just? talked about? I think the most important thing is that you should be well diversified and then you should be aware that when you tilt away by putting more weights in on some of these risk premium rather than others, you kind of give away diversification. Yet, I'm a big fan of customization. I think, I mean, we talked about how much people should take risk depending on their circumstances and not just only on their risk aversion. Uh, this is the same when it comes to uh, portfolio customization. Uh, different people should be exposed to different premia. There, I, I am very cautious because even in academia, we don't have that many results in that direction. For example, I mean, but there is some. For example, people with a short horizon and people that are more able to bear risk should buy value stocks. If you have a very long horizon, uh, you could actually tilt your portfolio towards uh, growth stocks. Uh, remember, growth stocks are the Amazons, are the Facebooks, are the Google. These are companies that tend to pay uh, dividend more in the long run. Value stocks tend to instead have a lower, shorter duration, pay high dividends. There are risk premiums also in the bond market. There is the duration premium, which is how much long-term bond pay or uh, how much higher the yield of long-term bond is with respect to short-term bonds. There is the inflation uh, risk premium, which is what you get by investing in nominal bonds rather than inflation-protected bonds. There is the credit risk premium, which is uh, particularly 
sharp, I would say, and clear in bonds that are just below investment grade. I think, uh, for example, uh, an investor who has a long horizon doesn't need liquidity in between. I would tilt its bond portfolio towards uh, long-term bonds in order that, uh, in order for this person to uh, a high uh, yield and the duration premium. But this has to be done carefully because it means reducing the diversification in your portfolio. Uh, so, uh, so and I think. Uh, it's uh, it's um, and it's something where uh, I think more research is actually needed. And would it be fair to say that actually, you know, this should be role of a good financial advisor? So, financial advisor should you know first and foremost be able to personalize and customize you know the portfolio for for its client. But also, like, let me add it here, probably it's a good moment. I also think financial advisor, you know, should be independent in a sense that not selling its own products and not having commissions from the product itself, but rather just taking the fee from, from, it, from its client. You know, do we have advisors like that? There are a few. I think there is a big problem in retail financial markets in the sense that the advising, custodian, and producing are not clearly separated. Mm. So you are going to go to the bank that is going to sell its own product where you have the account where these products are going to be. <laughs> you get the advice from a bank uh, from the same um, company which produces, holds, and advises you on what to do. And this obviously creates conflicts of interest because uh, uh, the advisor at that bank will try to sell you the product of that bank. You hear very often people saying that they got financial advice for free and they are very happy. That's absolutely not true. What's happening is that the financial advisor gets a cut from the fee that you pay to the fund company. So obviously they will try to sell funds that have a largest commission. So you think you get something for free, in the end you get an advice which is biased and tilts you towards products that have high fees. Um, but there are advisors that actually do take pride in not offering their own products, not taking commissions, and not actually also being the custodian of where the financial assets are held. And so then they have to concentrate on their own services that are about personalization of the financial portfolio, making sure your needs are met, and financial and sound financial planning. So let us perhaps stop here and recap what we have said today. And I think there are really three main takeaways. The first is once you have decided on the amount of risk you want to take in your portfolio, you maintain it by rebalancing it. You know, there is a big no for time in the market, so don't attempt time in the market and diversify. Thank you for listening. Thank you. For our listeners who'd like to hear more from us, you can find more podcasts and seminar videos on houseoffinance.se. Don't forget to rate our podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts. 